Hello, this is Jonathan Kay from the University of Massachusetts Medical School reporting for Room Now at ULAR 2021. On this first day of the meeting, there were three very interesting epidemiologic abstracts presented in the opening plenary session, all dealing with rheumatoid arthritis. Cigarette smoking has been shown to be an important risk factor for the development of rheumatoid arthritis, especially with anti-citrullinated protein antibodies, and particularly in individuals who carry the HLA-DRB1 shared epitope alleles. But what about passive exposure to cigarette smoke? Well, abstract OP0012 by Nguyen et al. found that passive exposure to cigarette smoke, especially during childhood, increases the risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis by nearly 50% among women who never smoked. However, passive exposure to cigarette smoke did not increase the risk of developing rheumatoid arthritis among women who had previously smoked themselves. This large population-based prospective cohort study of nearly 80,000 French women suggests that inhalation of byproducts of cigarette smoke generates autoimmunity towards antigens involved in the pathogenesis of rheumatoid arthritis. Interstitial lung disease as a complication of rheumatoid arthritis has recently been a topic of great interest to rheumatologists. The RS3570590 variant of the MUC5B promoter has been identified as the strongest known genetic risk factor for developing interstitial lung disease in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. What impact does this promoter variant have on the long-term incidence of rheumatoid arthritis-associated interstitial lung disease? Well, Palameki et al. in abstract 0P0007 found that the presence of this variant in patients with rheumatoid arthritis conferred a lifetime risk of nearly 15% of developing interstitial lung disease compared to only a 4% lifetime risk in individuals without rheumatoid arthritis. It remains to be seen whether this finding can be applied clinically to identify individuals at higher risk for developing interstitial lung disease and to intervene therapeutically. In clinical practice, the question always arises as to whether biological or targeted synthetic disease-modifying antirheumatic drugs increase the risk of developing COVID-19 or increase the potential severity of COVID-19 infection. In abstract OP0006, Sparks et al. analyzed data from the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. Of the nearly 1,700 patients with rheumatoid arthritis treated with biological DMARDs and targeted synthetic DMARDs at the onset of COVID-19, those treated with rituximab had a six-fold greater risk of dying than those treated with TNF inhibitors. Those treated with JAK inhibitors had a 1.5-fold greater risk of death. This underscores the importance of risk mitigation strategies such as vaccination, social distancing, mask wearing, and good personal hygiene, especially among rheumatoid arthritis patients receiving rituximab or JAK inhibitors. Well, tomorrow is the second day of ULAR, and there will be more abstracts about rheumatoid arthritis and other diseases presented, and I'll be back tomorrow. But for more ULAR 2021 coverage, head to roomnow.com. I'm Jonathan Kay. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine. I'm coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland with the Room Now faculty. We just finished up day one of ULAR. Um, it's been a wonderful conference thus far. Check in to roomnow.com for tons of updates. I'm here to talk about abstract uh, oral presentation 0050. This was looking at the two-year diagnostic consistency 
in patients with chronic back pain suspected of axial spondyloarthritis. So the patients in the study come from the SPACE cohort, that's the spondyloarthritis caught early cohort. Patients in this cohort are age 16 or older and they're referred for chronic back pain, which is suspicious of axial spondyloarthritis. They have two years of protocolized follow-up. Patients come from Netherlands, Italy, Norway, and Sweden. And as part of this trial, they had a diagnosis that was made at baseline, and then again at two years of follow-up. With each of these diagnoses, the physician uh, would, would also attach a level of confidence that they were assessed. Uh, so if you were diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis with a confidence score of seven or greater, you were considered to have axial spondyloarthritis. If you were less confident than that, you were not felt to meet the diagnosis. Information that was available was how many spondyloarthritis features there were, HLA B27 positivity, CRP, ESR, and the imaging was based upon locally read imaging results. Baseline characteristics, there was um, at the initial presentation, they had a mean age of 31, symptom duration of 13 months. Of the patients, 71% were assessed to have spondyloarthritis diagnosis at baseline. 59% were HLA B27 positive. Interestingly, only 66% had inflammatory back pain, which I would have expected a higher number um, given this patient population uh, and their diagnosis. Um, Synchroiliitis was present on radiographs in 17% uh, and 46% on MRI. Again, this is based off the local read and uh, not at a overread at an academic center. Number of spots features were amina four, so at that kind of borderline of the diagnosis. So of the 71% that had axial spondyloarthritis at the initial uh, presentation, 88% of those had a confirmed diagnosis at two years, 12% crossed over into the not axial spondyloarthritis group. In the not axial spondyloarthritis group, which was 29% of the initial group, 16, I'm sorry, 19 or 19 of 66 patients switched into axial spondyloarthritis. This was 22% progression or change into um, the axial spondyloarthritis diagnosis. 78% stayed where they were. So in general, that's 84% stayed in their group um, and 16% uh, had a change of either becoming arthritis or losing that diagnosis. Um, so which, which were the patients that had these inconsistent diagnoses where they change over time? Um, there were patients where the physician understandably had less confidence in their initial diagnosis. They had less spa features and imaging findings were, were negative. Um, in patients that had arthritis at the initial assessment um, and later assessed not to have it, they were more likely to be female, less often to have HLA B27 positivity. So I think this is interesting looking at two different uh, time points and seeing um, the change in characteristics. Uh, it is reassuring to see that there is 84% consistency rate in diagnosis over time. Um, but, um, you know, there is a significant number of patients that uh, do change. So it's important not to anchor on the diagnosis initially or the absence of the diagnosis. And this really just shows that um, there was an overall increase in level of confidence over time. So there's a value of serially following the patients and seeing um, things that develop, things that do not develop in reassessment over time. Um, I think this is something that I, I will bring to my practice um, 
again, in understanding that that initial assessment, four out of five times, you can be confident in your diagnosis, but understanding the degree of, of anchoring that could occur uh, and the importance of reassessment. Uh, once again, I'm Dr. Dyan reporting from ULAR. It's been um, a great first day. I look forward to checking in with you on roomnow.com uh, throughout this conference. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting from RUNOW for ULAR 2021, meant to be in Paris, but now on the virtual stage. And it's been quite an interesting first day um, here at the conference. I'd really like to tell you a bit about um, some real world data about tocilizumab and giant cell arteritis, abstract number 65. I think we've had a lot of questions about tocilizumab and GCA, first drug that we've, we've had to treat this. But there's always been a concern that it's just treating the inflammation on top of the disease and making us feel good rather than necessarily dealing with the intravascular complications that lie underneath like blindness. And so we've been waiting to see broader real world data about this and it's starting to come through now. And there's always complications in trying to interpret this, but I think this is really interesting messages in amongst what we've seen at this meeting in the oral abstracts. Spanish real-world um, data, 312 patients treated with tocilizumab from 57 centres right across Spain. And what we saw presented was about the rates of visual loss, both transient visual loss and then more permanent visual loss for more than 24 hours, and how that responded in the context of starting on tocilizumab. So the first message to say is that there was no new visual loss on patients who had started tocilizumab in amongst these 312 patients. Uh, and so I think that's really encouraging. This is despite there being a normal breadth in terms of the types of patients in this cohort. Um, so once again, reassuring once we started that perhaps we might be able to stop patients from being blind, whether that's the steroids or the tosi. Secondly, though, the transient visual loss all resolved all the amaurosis fujakis didn't return and didn't come back. And I think that's reassuring. But the really interesting bit is the fact that visual loss that had already been going on for greater than 24 hours at the time of tocilizumab commencement, 25% of that actually turned back the clock as well and improved. And in fact, we saw that even patients in, who had had greater than 30 days of visual loss um, actually had improvement after stopping uh, starting tocilizumab. So I think, you know, blindness is a fairly clear-cut thing in amongst real-world data, so I think there's a lot of weight that we can put on this. Obviously, we'd like to see even more data, but I think there's some really interesting implications for practice here at ULR 2021. Perhaps this gives me the confidence to say that tocilizumab maybe does have some of the answers as far as the divide in terms of intravascular and inflammatory disease and GCA is concerned. For all your other updates on ULI 2021 and everything else rheumatology, go to Room Now. Hi, uh, I'm uh, Dr. Yus Yusuf uh, from Leeds, UK, uh, reporting for Room Now uh, for uh, ULI 2021. Uh, I'm delighted to be uh, joined by Dr. Sabih Ul-Hassan, 
um, from University of Leeds, UK, um, who just uh, presented an oral presentation uh, on Wednesday, 2nd of June, 2021, uh, abstract number uh, OP0044. Um, uh, hi, uh, Dr. Hassan. Hello. Okay. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, can you please um, uh, describe um, what were the objective of your study? Yep. So the uh, study's objectives were to see whether um, in a cohort of ANA positive patients, what would be the outcome if we, if we followed them up for a number of years, so three years to be precise in this case. Second, could we uh, predict who is going to develop an autoimmune condition such as lupus or Sjogren's? Um, and three, whether we can somehow identify those patients who don't necessarily need to be followed up for that long, i.e. those patients who are just not going to develop anything clinically significant. Okay, so uh, this was a prospective uh, longitudinal study of three years follow-up of uh, ANA-positive individuals, yeah. Um, yeah. So can you please uh, summarize uh, your key findings? Yep. So firstly, we noticed that there were uh, five distinct groups in this, subgroups in this. So uh, firstly, there were 21 people who progressed within the first 12 months of follow-up to develop to actually meeting criteria for one of the autoimmune connective tissue diseases. So namely SLE and Sjogren's in this case. Um, we then had a second group of uh, individuals who developed one of these conditions in the latter uh, half of the, of the study. And then we had uh, those who did not actually meet classification criteria, but uh, needed some treatment, whether it was anti-malarial uh, or whether it was um, immunosuppression. And finally, there were patients who did not meet any criteria at all at any time point, and those we called absolute non-progressors. Uh, secondly, we uh, found that um, interference scores A and B both predict people who are going to develop autoimmune condition within the first 12 months. Um, and also um, those amongst the patients who did not meet criteria, but did need immunosuppressant medication. They, they also predicted that. Um, and finally, uh, there were um, other flow cytometry biomarkers that uh, again, correlated quite strongly with those patients who progressed to developing immune conditions within the first year, uh, or those who required immunosuppression such as CD4, T cells and monocytes. Um, and lastly, uh, although those patients we called absolute non-progressors who did not develop any, who um, did not meet any criteria at any time point, still actually serologically had uh, a lot of um, abnormalities. Oh, that's very interesting. So um, to conclude, like you mentioned uh, people who have high interference scores and some uh, flow cytometry markers um, can be used to predict people who do meet in progress meeting criteria or immunosupp or require immunosuppressant. But you also saw in a in ANA positive individual who will not progress, there were also some immune disturbances there. Okay, and you know, um, how would you you know um, how would these you know, findings uh, be applicable to practice? 
Um, so I think uh, in terms, the first thing would be to um, not just dismiss people who don't have a, a sort of a, a tangible immune condition uh, from the outset. So, you know, practices differ in different centers. You may see a clinician may see a patient who, you know, has an ANA positive blood test, but nothing much going on. And they may be too, perhaps too quick to sort of say, well, actually, this person doesn't meet any criteria that I need to be seen again. Um, so first recommendation would be to actually try and see patients for at least a year because it may take as long as that uh, for some of the ones who are going to develop a condition um, to develop it. Um, second is that um, these mark biomarkers in a more routine setting can actually help predict who's going to develop it. So the next step from this study would be to um, actually produce risk prediction models, which would we would then test and validate uh, to be able to use in uh, in uh, routine clinical setting. Okay, um, so thank you for offering uh, to be interviewed today. Um, so um, my can, pleasure. Uh, yep, thank you so much. Uh, thank and you can follow me um, on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is uh, at use six Yusuf. Tune into a uh, room now for more uh, reports and updates uh, from the uh, conference. Uh, thank you. Thanks very much. Bye. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope, a room reporter at Room Now. I'd like to talk about whether or not we should do labs on RA patients who are taking upadacitinib. And I guess the question is, are they on monotherapy or combination therapy? So I'm going to concentrate mostly on patients who were combination therapy upadacitinib, 15 milligrams once a day, compared to adalimumab, 40 milligrams every other day, added to methotrexate. And this is um, the oral presentation 128 at ULAR 2021. And what this is, is a compilation of six randomized controlled trials, again, comparing methotrexate monotherapy with a placebo added, upadacitinib, 15 milligrams added to methotrexate or adalimumab. And obviously not all of the six RCTs had an adalimumab arm. So what the investigators did was they looked at grade three and four abnormalities on labs. And these are standardized definitions. Now to know not every patient with a grade three abnormality needs to even hold drugs and a grade four abnormality, you might only transiently hold a drug. But with that in mind, grade three or four cytopenias, and by this, I mean lymphopenia and neutropenia and transaminitis by elevated AST were elevated more commonly on upadacitinib patients than adalimumab patients. Now, in fairness, the rates were very low, but sometimes about doubled on upadacitinib, 15 milligrams a day compared to adalimumab. I'm going to ignore the arm of upadacitinib, 30 milligrams a day that had more um, lab abnormalities and more grade three and four lab abnormalities because we don't use that dose. Now, interestingly, creatinine was not increased more on upadacitinib than adalimumab. So most events were uncommon, 
the treatment emergent adverse events of the lab abnormalities a little bit higher on upadacitinib than adalimumab, all low rates. What's the take home? I think it's important that if a patient's on a JAK inhibitor, such as upadacitinib, that we should be doing lab variables now and then. The product monograph often says, look at the white count, the differential, the hemoglobin, the platelet count, know what the creatinine is, follow some liver enzymes, and at some point along the way, check the lipids to see if they're having lipid abnormalities. This abstract didn't address checking the lipids. So I think the take-home is for us, do labs when a patient's on a JAK inhibitor, but lab abnormalities that are serious or causing discontinuation of medications with JAK inhibitors and rheumatoid arthritis added to methotrexate are very uncommon. So follow us at room now. And if you have questions or comments, please make them. Thank you. Hi, it's Dr. Janet Pope reporting at ULAR 2021 as a room reporter for At Room Now. I wanted to talk about systemic lupus erythematosus and something that might be a practice changer for me. There was a large population-based study of patients who have a verified algorithm for a diagnosis of systemic lupus erythematosus. So they looked at people with new SLE, and then they age and uh, sex match them from the population. This is from British Columbia in Canada. And they did a matching of about five to one. So for one lupus patient, about five controls. And they looked at patients between 1997 to 2015. And what they looked at was the proportion of newly diagnosed patients with systemic lupus er erythematosus who had their first severe infection, and they looked at infection-related mortality. So they had over 5,000 patients with lupus and over 25,000 non-lupus match controls. These are the sobering data that they showed. So they showed the first severe infection was almost 2.6 times higher in people with lupus than matched controls. And also very solemn, the infection mortality was about 2.2 increased compared to patients or the population who were matched. When you looked for confounding, the bottom line was new SLE had a twofold increase infections and 1.6 increased mortality. And these are new patients that have probably barely been on therapy. This is an oral presentation OP0043. So why does it change my practice? I think I will be highly aware that I already knew lupus had an increased risk of infection, but serious infections causing mortality, although rare, are far more common than their age and sex match peers in the population. And I think it might be something where I will try to limit corticosteroids for this reason, as well as many others. Please follow us at Room Now and enjoy the meeting.